So we want to unpack, <clears throat> if you like, unfold, have a closer look at and inquire into uh, Eros and the path, the relationship of Eros and the path, but also Eros on the path <clears throat> and Eros for the path. What is it to have an erotic relationship with the path that one is on? Um, and so if wanting to inquire further into that and explore all that, open it out <clears throat> for our investigation and questioning and practice. Um, because of all that we've said so far about what Eros is and what it does, um, to talk about Eros and the path, Eros on the path, Eros for the path, uh, means, of course, to talk about soul-making um, and the path, soul-making on the path, soul-making with respect to the path. Um, it, because, of course, as we've said, eros stimulates uh, soul making. <clears throat> it's a part of soul making, and soul making always involves eros. As we're using those terms, they implicate and involve each other. So, eros and soul making um, on the path and with respect to the path. Now, we should also point out that when we talk about path, implicit in talking about path is the idea or the sense or the vision or fantasy of where that path is going. Its aim, its direction, its goal, awaken it. Uh, whatever, uh, whatever the concept, vision, image, fantasy of awakening is. So talking about eros and soul making with respect to the path um, necessitates, involves already talking about uh, eros and soul making with respect to whatever idea and fantasy of awakening we have, or the different ideas and fantasies of awakening. And further, to tie a third point in, any idea or fantasy of awakening um, implies uh, an ideation, a logos, uh, regarding the world. So in other words, how does, uh, the, the, how does the vision of awakening, the idea of awakening, conceive of the world? What's the relationship between world, um, the senses, what we experience through the senses, which we could call the world, um, or life? Um, what's, uh, to talk about awakening means also talking about that, so that... Um, Senses, world, life, sense, pleasure, all that. The relationship with that is implicit in the idea of awakening, the vision of awakening, the image of awakening. And the idea of awakening is implicit in the vision, image of the path. And so if we talk about eros and soul-making and, and the path, eros and soul-making on or for the path, wrapped up in that is the whole fantasy and logos of awakening. And wrapped up in that is the whole... Uh, idea about the world, about sen the senses and life. So that to talk about Eros um, for the path and on the path is not really separate from talking about Eros and soul making uh, and its relationship to the world. Uh, what the, the path and the ideation, the vision of the path allows or disallows, encourages or doesn't um, in terms of the directionality of Eros and soul making um, with respect to the world. So these three are connected. The world, life, the senses, if you like, uh, awakening, and
and uh, path, eros, eros and the path. Three three aspects there are actually interwoven um, inevitably in each other when we when we begin to unpack these things. And then, as was already made clear uh, plenty of times, hopefully by now, when we talk about soul making, we are talking about eros, psyche, and logos. In other words, this this erotic movement, this erotic inclination, um, attraction, kind of desire. Um, psyche meaning image and fantasy, and logos meaning ideation and concept. So all those three, eros, psyche, logos, are wrapped up with those three um, path, awakening, and world, <coughs> or senses, or life. So all these, these uh, one set of threes and the other set of threes, they're all, they're all completely um, interrelated, interwoven. So let's let's go into this a little bit, take our time. Like, what does the mind do with respect to, let's say, sense pleasure? So how does again, how does this tie into uh, what, what the path says about what we do with sense pleasure? Because that's related to how awakening envisages a relationship with sense pleasure, and tied in with that, then is a relationship, of course, with the whole world and all that. So eros, sense pleasure and awakening and there and there are sort of possible uh, ways they're constellated or conceived of in different frameworks or different visions <coughs> of path and awakening. So one and one that you'll be probably quite familiar with, even if you're not familiar with the words, is that when there's pleasant baden, a pleasant sensation, uh, when there's sense pleasure, it uh, or, or the or the possibility of sense pleasure um, in the future, then what quickly comes in for unawakened human beings is papancha. And of course that applies to unpleasant sensations as well. But um, So here's this possibility of pleasantness, that chocolate cake, whatever it is, um, that uh, attractive person. And the mind starts spinning around that and kind of veiling it over, hyping it up with papancha. How wonderful this thing is, how beautiful it looks, how dear they are, um, how interesting they must be, this person, or what, whatever it is. And uh, there's a, a veil of papancha, of kind of ideation, thinking, and imagination, etc. All that's called papancha, complicating, etc. And this is um, unanimously regarded as a bad thing. Papancha um, creates more craving and clinging. It's part of that process and creates self and basically creates dukkha and uh, entanglement in dukkha and all that. And the practice, so practice, is therefore cutting that link, cutting the link from um, pleasant vedna, which is kind of unavoidable in life, or um, and and what comes, what can flow out of that in terms of craving, but now particularly the papancha. So just cut the papancha off, and what you get wrapped up uh, or implicit in that kind of view is often is that when you cut that off then there's a kind of there's a kind of reductionism so we are reducing all this hype, clearing away all this hype and all the entanglement papancha all the veils of illusory thinking and uh, aggrandizement of the object that I'm attracted to in this case and the imagery that goes with it the imagination that goes with it and we're reducing to just sense pleasure 
just sense pleasure. Um, so that when I'm in, in a situation which involves sense pleasure, there is just sense pleasure, and I'm not adding any more to it with imagination or concept, etc. There's a kind of reductionism in there, and this can go a couple of different ways, which are not really separate, and we've touched on this before, right? So, so it can, can, can kind of go into a kind of atomistic, a reductionism of towards an atomistic process view, as if there is just this moment of bare sense pleasure, which can be revealed with bare attention, when just there's the registering of sense pleasure, but nothing more is added to that. Um, in terms of imagination or thought or, or that or that kind of thing. Um, and so really what reality is that we can be with is just this bare process of bare registration of sense pleasure. And yes, it's enjoyable, but we just register that and we don't add anything. And that's the kind of movement there to strip away down to the bare elements of this um, kind of atomistic and automatic process, if you like, uh, at its barest level. Or it can go into a kind of slightly uh, softer sounding um, kind of vision of um, path and awakening, which is to be with what is. Um, be in the moment. Be with the, the touch of life. Open to the touch of life. And if the touch is pleasant, then that's what you're open to. And if it's enjoyable, that's what you're open to. And if it's unpleasant, that's what you're open to. Um, here, implicit too, there's a kind of realism of uh, the what is is assumed to be real. The touch of life. There's the usually the assumption of reality uh, wrapped up in that. When I strip away this papancha, then I'm... Uh, passively receiving the, the real touch of life, etc. Now that one, that touch of life or being with what is, is slightly more romantic. There's a bit more possibility for some kind of eros and soul making than with the atomistic process view. But the, the two get mixed, you know, and as I said before, sometimes the word process gets re replaced with the word flow, for instance, and then you've got sort of river and water analogies or imagery associated with it, which can be a little more little more juicy. Um, but still here, uh, with this kind of view of cutting the papancha, that uh, the eros and the soul-making is limited. The path says, um, Im imagination of fantasy and thought about the sense object, about the sense pleasure, is papancha, cut the papancha. In cutting the papancha, psyche and logos are cut, and eros in relationship to the senses, in relationship to the world, is uh, limited cut as well. So that's one view, and yeah, like I said, whether you know the language, you're familiar with that exact language or not, you'll you'll recognise that uh, that kind of thrust of the teaching. Uh, a second view, and actually, if you again, if you if you if you take a closer look at the Pali Canon. Um, while there certainly is that, that level of teaching about Papancha, there's also, uh, Papancha is filled out um, uh, in, in terms of what it actually means, what the Buddha really means by Papancha. Uh, it says a lot more, it has a lot more depth to it than what, what I've just explained. And there's a sutta where I think Sariputta is explaining um, about Papancha. And he says that what Papancha really means um, it's equivalent to sense perception 
In other words, it's equivalent to sense experience. Papancha is really objectification, meaning making objects, making things, self and this, this lamp, this table, this piece of paper, this person, etc. So papancha means um, the making manifold, the um, construing in in the perception, in the actual experience, in the world, into objects, separate objects, things that um, seem to exist. So papancha is actually equivalent with um, fabricating the perception of objects, the perception of things. So papancha has this whole other um, level of of meaning to it beyond this idea of um, being cut and removed with bare attention, uh, which is there. But there's a whole other level. In other words, what is what actually is the Buddha referring to when he says papancha? What's included in that? What's the extent of that? Um, there is if you like, the papancha of the senses, meaning the equivalence, actually, of senses and papancha. So that to let go of papancha is really to let go of the whole edifice of what we were calling clinging, and the whole edifice, the whole building, construction of the fabrication of perception. So a moment of no papancha is really a moment of no fabrication of perception, a moment of the unfabricated. Uh, Where there is no papancha, there is no... Um, uh, object, you can't really um, talk of anything, as the Buddha said, where all phenomena cease, all ways of speaking cease. Here then, in the, if the path is construed as this, um, here, here is the sense, sense experience, and we're trying to, you know, um, get rid of papancha, that the whole movement there, again, is towards the unfabricated. The eros, the erotic movement and attraction is away from appearances away from the world, to the unfabricated. So that therefore, of course, the um, psyche and logos, the uh, soul-making in relation to the world, is very limited. It's not itself really uh, a, 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 an object, an erotic object, an, a, an object for soul-making. Compare that with a view, a third view of um, sense pleasure, which would perhaps make a distinction between papancha and the craving that goes with that, and soul making and the eros that goes with that. So papancha craving on one side, and psyche soul making eros on the other side. So where there's eros, there will be soul making. What's the difference? So we've touched on this before. What's the difference in papancha and psyche, papancha and soul making? Um, we, we, you know, eros and craving. We've talked about the the lessening of contraction, the the different experience in the energy body, um, the fact of the eros psyche logos dynamic opening things up and liberating, if you if you like, the object away from realism, expansion, all that. So that, for example, if we talk about sense pleasure, eros in um, in touching a lover, in the in the touch of two lovers, or eros w- w- with respect to the, the the touch between two lovers, um, what's going on for those two lovers when there is the erotic connection? There is it. Is it really just sense pleasure? Is that all it is between two lovers? It's just pleasant sensation? And would we teach those lovers 
bring mindfulness to the sensation in, in your lovemaking and notice the, the bare sensation of pleasure. Is that the, uh, the, the guide to profound uh, lovemaking that we're going to teach them? Bare attention and, and the noticing of sense pleasure. Is that, is that all that's going on there? Or is it just sense pleasure plus papancha? Are we really going to say that? Some people would. Um, or are we even going to say um, that in the, in the touch of two, between two lovers, it, what's really going on there is, yes, there's some sense pleasure, and then there's some love, in, in, in the, uh, meaning care. They care for each other. So what's really going on, what's really communicated and felt in that touch is a combination of sense pleasure and care. And again, some people will say, yes, that's what's going on. Slightly more generous view. Um, is it, though? Is that all that's going on? It's not that there's not sense pleasure, and hopefully it's not that there's no, there's no care. But really, in, to, can we inquire into this? Is it papancha? What's the, what's the missing ingredient? Or is it actually soul-making? That there is, in the eros, fantasies, images, dimensionalities, beauties... In, in the erotic other, in the touch itself, in the sense of the eros, in the auto-eroticism, all of that. You could call it papancha, but you might be missing, you would probably be missing something. And to call it just sense, pleasure and care, again, would be missing something. Or again, you know, uh, a guy house, and I venture this is true for most uh, retreat centers in the insight meditation tradition, probably all retreat centers, um, in in the Buddhist tradition, I'm guessing, how many cookbooks there are in the kitchen? <laughs> it's staggering. <laughs> if you go into the kitchen, there's there's shelf loads of cookbooks, and some of the cooks who cook in the kitchen have their own personal cookbooks as well, uh, and and really a lot. What's going on there? So here in cooking for the retreatants and their staff, um, is it just pleasure-seeking, the, the pleasure of pleasant food? Is it just pleasure plus care for the retreats? Or is there not another element of fantasy of soul-making in relation to the food? All these cooking programs, all these cookbooks with the fantastic photography and the, and, and, and the, the um, suggestions of the, the abundance of the earth, the fruit of the earth, the freshness, the interconnectedness with, with nature, the um, sophistication uh, in certain, uh, or the, uh, of certain uh, you know, orientations to food and the, the sophistication of the palate and the refinement of the sensitivity uh, or uh, the interconnectedness with all things there. Wrapped up in this, um, in, in the relationship with food and in the uh, movement of preparing food and all that is soul-making, is fantasy, is logos. Cannot be, I don't think, reduced to sense, pleasure, plus care. Or you can notice when it is. What a different relationship. Different kinds of cooks cook very different meals. And sometimes when it's just um, just about care, for instance, with, with some, you know, make it pleasant, it's a very different presentation. It's a very different orientation and relationship. 
Or again, in Vajrayana teachings, when, when the teachings see all appearances as divine, see all appearances as divine, and there is in that already some tendency, um, or it's a, it will tend to transform the Vedana into pleasant. Um, but again, it's not, uh, you know, this tantric movement is not just about sense pleasure and about just enjoying sense pleasure. Some of the very cheap versions seem to mistake it for that. And you could say, well, that's just papancha, and a kind of dismissal of that whole Vajrayana movement and intention. Is seeing appearances as divine, is that just sense pleasure? Is it, is it just sense pleasure and papancha? Or is it, soul, is it the movement of soul-making? So, there is in that, uh, and, and in the cooking, and in the lover's touch, there's this eros and soul-making with respect to the senses. That's, that's, in other words, how are the senses viewed? What eros and soul-making? With respect to the senses, the touch of the world. Um, certainly with respect to sense pleasure, but actually also uh, with respect to neutral and unpleasant. We're looking at that. What's the eros and soul-making that's allowed by the conception, by the vision, um, with respect to the world and the world of the senses and, and in this case particular sense pleasure and actually if we expand that a little and and, um, and touch on some Vajrayana teachings um, which are you know related to very much related to what we're talking about here with soul making and imaginal and eros then you get uh, as I said these icon statues or um, tankas or Paintings or whatever of um, of sexual union between the female and the male Buddhas or Bodhisattvas. There, there's eros between the female and the male. Now, the female is often, um, or rather, the the prajna, the wisdom, the insight is often depicted as female in those iconographies, and uh, the male is often representing. Uh, what's called upaya, which, which is usually translated as skillful means. So, in a way, this, this erotic union, that there's an icon of an erotic union between the female and the male, they're really, in a way, representing um, aspects of Buddhahood um, as a union of wisdom and means. The union of the female wisdom and the masculine means, just depicted that way traditionally. Okay, so so that that's you know uh, in, interesting. Uh, it has a whole other level because, uh, in terms of what we're talking about, because this word upaya um, in the Vajrayana tradition can also refer to the mandala, and the mandala is, if you like, the not just this uh, arrangement of of. Um, you know, sand painting or whatever it is, but the mandala at its deeper level represents the world of divine appearances. So in other words, and we've talked about this on the re-enchanting retreat, one level of what the mandala is, is this is the mandala. If I see it the right way, where I am sitting right now, where I am walking right now, wherever I find myself, in the transubstantiation, the transformation of perception, becomes the mandala. It becomes the, the means, the skillful means. In other words, the world of appearances, of divine appearances. When the world and the appearances and the senses are seen a certain way, it becomes the upaya.
What is the means of the Buddha? The skillful means, the skillful means is the world. This is what the Buddha uses. So that means that this sexual union that's depicted in the iconography there between the female um, prajna, uh, the female wisdom, which at its level of Buddhahood is actually has the word jnana, which is related to our word gnosis, um, and that the sexual union between the gnosis of the Buddha and the upaya, the um, the divine appearances, the world and sense experience. There's a sexual union. There's an erotic connection. How different this is between uh, th- this version is from the first version. Let's say cutting the papancha, uh, where there is almost no eros are allowed. Um, or moving away from it towards the unfabricated. There's no eros, or very little eros allowed with respect to the senses and with respect to the world. We'll revisit this um, several times as we go on. But here there's eros depicted, symbolized, between, if you like, the experiencer, uh, the, the wise experiencer, um, and the experience, in other words, the senses, the world, the divine appearances, between the knower and the known, between the divine subject, uh, that Buddha, that Buddha nature, that ultimate gnosis, that ultimate m- mind, if you like, uh, ultimate kind of kind of consciousness, uh, between the divine subject, that divine subject, and the divine object of, of, of sense experience, of, of world. Uh, some people, this is a bit of an aside, some people actually refer to the coalescence of emptiness and appearance, and that, the coalescence of emptiness and appearances, and that actually has a couple of different levels of meaning. One meaning, which I've referred to in the past, is just that um, appearances are empty. You can't get an emptiness that's separate from appearances. That's what it's referring to, and, and appearances are empty through and through. There's another level in the teachings, um, or rather in some traditions of the teaching, which actually um, redefine, if you like, or expand on, on the very word emptiness. So the, the word emptiness means different things in different Buddhist traditions, and you should be aware of this. And so uh, it can mean really quite a range uh, of, of uh, it refers to really quite, or there's a quite a range of what it what it's taken to mean the word emptiness so um, mostly i use it as the absence of inherent existence that things don't exist independently from their own side independent of the way of looking so to speak that's mostly how i use it but there are traditions um where emptiness and this jnana this um is is equivalent this Buddha's gnosis, this ultimate mind, if you like, ultimate chitta. Uh, so that's actually the meaning of emptiness, more than just absence of inherent existence. It includes the absence of inherent existence, of what is observed, <coughs> what appears, and it knows that absence of inherent existence, and it also includes the absence of its own inherent existence. This jnana, this gnosis, this Buddha nature, this ultimate knowing is also um, lacking in inherent existence. But there's also, uh, as well as all that, there's a kind of non-duality between the knower and the known, so that this Buddha nature, this ultimate awareness, if you like, um, encompasses both the knowing and and the, uh, the world, the senses, the appearances. So there's some uh, case 
for uh, in the Prajnaparamita Sutra, the Heart Sutra, which is a very famous sutra, where it actually says form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Um, I used to think that was just bad Sanskrit, um, and what it should say is form is empty, um, rather than form is emptiness. But um, and then it continues through all the aggregates. Vedana is emptiness. Emptiness is Vedana. Perception, perception is emptiness. Emptiness is perception. Sankara, mental formations, is emptiness. Uh, emptiness is mental formations. Consciousness, consciousness is, is emptiness. Emptiness is consciousness. Um, but from there's some case, and I think some scholars would very much argue, do argue, that uh, uh, actually uh, what the the meaning of the word emptiness in some of those some of those Prajnaparamita sutras is is actually in this much larger uh, meaning to refer to the Dharmakaya in this bigger sense of the Buddha's uh, gnosis of the ultimate kind of awareness, if you like, of the Buddha nature. Uh, that's a slight tangent, but uh, I think it's important to know if if you really want to get into all this stuff and uh, explore the teachings and understand. Uh, there's important divisions to be aware of, uh, and I think I've said in the past, you know, everyone might use the word emptiness. It's really, uh, really quite a range of differences in what people are actually talking about when they use that, and there's a lot of confusion that comes when when we don't really understand what a person means by emptiness, etc., or dharmakaya, or Buddha nature, or these words. Um, but the important point for for right now is that, um, as I said, that there's there's a very different notion implicit or an. A, uh, a very different eros allowed um, between the uh, practitioner and the world of the senses there, and the world in general. Um, because uh, this also gets mirrored in Kabbalah, and we'll, we'll come Kabbalistic teachings, and we'll come back to that later. We'll come back to all this later. But but this union that's de- depicted in the iconography there between, if you like, aspects of Buddhahood, aspects of the Buddha, aspects of Buddha nature, aspects of the ultimate, aspects of the Buddha's gnosis, whatever. This union between those aspects is actually to be practiced, to be um, mirrored, if you like, or mimicked in the, by humans in their practice. In other words, that iconography is encouraging uh, and allowing, but also encouraging a certain way of looking, a certain way of relating, a certain way of conceiving um, of senses and sense pleasure and the whole movement of what awakening is and, and the path and the soul making in relation to the world of the senses. So, so, as I said, it's all wrapped up together there. But this union that's depicted between aspects of, let's call it Buddha nature, um, is something that is to be mirrored, or better, mimicked, echoed, mimicked is a good word, um, in, in human beings' practice, in a practitioner's practice. So you can see just there, with those three or four um, different... Uh, kind of castings of the path in relationship to sense pleasure, and in the first one, <coughs> um, that uh, the 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 bare senses or what's received in the senses, the sense pleasure, um, is is regarded, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or unpleasant, is regarded as a basic kind of reality. 
and missing a whole level of the emptiness of that very sense perception itself, of the sense pleasure, of the sense unpleasantness, whatever. And it also, uh, as I mentioned, it as I stressed, it limits the soul-making eros in relation to the senses and in relation, therefore, to the world and to life, because world and life is what we get through the senses. <clears throat> in the second, this movement uh, kind of beyond this transcendent thrust that we're referring to um, that refers to papancha and the senses are kind of co-terminus uh, uh, in what they refer to um, and movement is beyond the world of the senses to drop the senses if you like and to puncture that and and uh, and open up to the unfabricated then then there the unfabricated is regarded as real and the word fabricated implies a fabrication, something not real. The unfabricated is reality. Everything else, the world of the senses, is essentially papancha. And uh, rather than re- re- this some kind of basic reality uh, revealable there. The world of the senses is not reality. Unfabricated is reality in that view. Um, and there's, there's a strong case for that view in, of a reading of the Pali Canon that way very much. Um, but there, the soul-making is only in relation to that unfabricated. That's the thrust. That's what I want to open to. That's what I want to penetrate and reach. And then, and then uh, the fantasy, the path, is around that. In the third, uh, the, the versions, either the soul-making uh, vision uh, of what we're talking about with the imaginal, etc., and eros, or the uh, Vajrayana versions of that, where they, in fact, overlap, I would say, um, uh, th- there's not the reality so much assumed of an independent existence, either of the unfabricated, and certainly not of the senses. Um, or I should say, most Vajrayana teachings, uh, I, I would say, um, uh, the emptiness is implicit there, and uh, or in the soul making, we say knowing image as image. <clears throat> but uh, the general point here is there's always a way of looking. There's always a conceptual framework, and there's always a fantasy and involved regarding sense pleasure. Uh, Vedana and world. There's always a way of looking in places said before. There's always some logos and some uh, psyche, some image and fantasy in in relationship with with the senses, with Vedana, with sense pleasure or unpleasant or whatever it is, with world. And that's determined by context, by teaching, by intention, by the conceptual framework of whatever tradition of Dharma we're being exposed to or we're in. And it has implications for eros and soul making in in all kinds of ways. Yeah, certainly in relation to to the senses and the world and what's allowed there. Yeah. Uh, actually, more than that, I'll come back to that. But let's just start there. So we're looking at where does the eros get to go? Where does it get to be directed? Um, uh, or, or to flow where is it allowed so a person and this is not I, I, uh, this is not just a hypothetical um, example I'm going to give but a person could have with them um, a lot of eros um, flowing in their system a lot of libido if we use that word um, a lot of eros towards the unfabricated 
they really want to know that. And towards the, the opening to the penetration of the realization of deep emptiness. And um, in, in their life, and they bring their energy and their intelligence and their creativity, and they're really into practice in that direction, everything that's involved in that directionality, and they reflect a lot, and they're experimenting, and all, all that. But in relation to the world, there is only the things of the world and sen- and the senses, there is only craving. There is not eros. In other words, there's no um, fantasy and image with respect to the world and the things of the senses. There's, the imaginal is not operating there. The imaginary may be operating, but the imaginal is not operating. And then this person um, is putting all their... Uh, energy, all their libido, in the direction of the unfabricated or deep emptiness, and if you like, just trying to kind of let go of their craving with respect to the world, but they can't shake their addiction, and they're calling it an addiction. They can't shake their addictions to food, keep going to the refrigerator, what's going on there, to sense pleasure, in different forms, and to uh, what they were calling ego aggrandizement. Despite the, the, the certain amount, and actually relatively deep penetration into emptiness, and despite uh, a certain amount of, of practice with that, and a certain amount of practice with the jhanas. What's, what's, what's missing here? What's going on? Uh, in terms of the jhanas, I should say, this is again, this is like this, Side point, but I want it's important to make. Um, the second jhana is is characterized by a, a really um, I was going to say overwhelming, but it's not, uh, maybe overwhelming at first, then you get used to it. Is a very deep, deep um, well upwelling of happiness and joy, and uh, that's 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 the sort of the essential, if you like, ingredient um, of the second jhana. One's just really absorbed in that, really. Uh, suffused, saturated in that happiness, um, running through the body, running through the heart and and the, and the mind there, uh, permeating, uh, filling up the body, the heart, and the mind. Um, this uh, repeated sort of sitting in that second jhana uh, has a direct bearing, I would say, uh, as as all the jhanas do, but something particularly about the second jhana, I think, has a direct bearing on um, our addiction to the to sense pleasure and our need for sense pleasure um, so that uh, with time we're kind of weaned off or we just it's not where we go to look for um, happiness and um, we have uh, we have a much richer source of, of happiness but this will only actually, we can only wean ourselves off it, we can only actually make that, um, uh, that weaning is only possible if we really sit um, and, and what I call marinate in, in, in the jhanas, in the second jhana in particular. Um, a little bit here and there, dipping out or just racing through because I want to do all eight jhanas and then get onto my insight meditation. Uh, it's a style of practicing the jhanas, but just dipping in that way probably won't make much difference to the operation and the pervasiveness uh, and the sort of um, niggling movement and force of craving in our life. We have to really marinate, I mean sit in it 
uh, again and again for hours and just soak it up and soak it up. Something deep, deep, deep in the being is is being transformed uh, in terms of patterns and needs and and where it really feels the fulfilment. And um, but only if we if we what I call marinate, only if you really sit in that un, under water in the happiness and just soak it up um, like a sponge for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then it makes a, it makes really a, a I, I think a lifetime a lifetime difference. But but the main point here is not so much about jhanas, it's saying it it's actually could it be that this person, these people, need actually um Rather than um, this of all the eros going to the unfabricated, and then then there's the kind of soul-making fantasy around that movement, around the transcendent thrust and the path as far as it's transcendent. Um, and with regard to the world, there's only craving. There's no imaginal allowed there. Um, it's refused for whatever reason. But maybe what they need, co- completely contrary to uh, sort of conventional um, assessment or wisdom. Maybe actually it's that the world and food and even the ego, whatever that is, um, needs to be imagined. We need to let the the imaginal infuse world, food, ego, whatever it is I'm addicted to, sense sense pleasure, so that, as is characteristic of the imaginal, they gain dimensionality. Food is not just sense pleasure. Uh, it's it's. Uh, even ego, even self starts to get image. The whole world of the senses and of sense pleasures starts to gain dimensionality and through the dimensionality some kind of sense of divinity. So that, for example, um, eating is, or drinking, whatever it is, uh, a cup of tea, um, whatever I'm eating, this is divine uh, nectar. Divine nectar that I'm drinking, that I'm eating, uh, etc. Uh, that would be an example of allowing the imaginal to infuse that realm of the senses instead of refusing the uh, imaginal dimension there and just trying to cut the craving. Why is it not working? I'm doing my emptiness practice. I'm really creative with that. I'm doing a little bit of jhana practice or whatever. Why is it not working after all these years? Might it actually be that there's a, a, a possible doorway opening into a freedom here that actually is quite the opposite of what we assume? And if divine nectar and all that sounds a bit silly to you, or if it sounds contrived, which it can be contrived, um, I, I would say practice with this. Practice in relationship to the world and in relationship to the senses and sense pleasure. Um, images await you. Images that work for you await you. You don't have to choose the standard sort of Vajrayana ones like Divine Nectar is a standard Vajrayana, Vajrayana sort of uh, practice or instruction. Seeing food and drink that way. <coughs> um, but... You know, we're we're practicing the imaginal in a more sort of open and and creative, less prescriptive uh, way. So I would say images await that await you that work for you. Images that work for you 
are waiting for you to discover them in relation to the senses, images of sense pleasures, images of the things of the world. Yeah. So again, what's the difference here? And I go back to what I was relating about um, one of my oncologists saying about taking holidays, taking holidays, and there's this sense of escaping something there. Um, what's the difference between uh, seeking sense pleasure, seeking an escape of something or other in sense pleasure, or seeking an escape from the world, as the Buddha sometimes talked about it, into the jhana or into the unfabricated? What's the difference between that what's it, and, and something that... Um, brings an embodied soul-making into our sense experience, into relationship. There's an erotic soul-making, imaginal relationship with the experience of the senses, in other words, with life, with the world. So pilgrimage, if you like, instead of vacation. Yeah, we talked about that. <coughs> so... Nietzsche uh, said, or wrote, wrote actually, um, the degree and kind, I'll leave this in his gender bias language, but the, for now, the degree and kind of a man's sexuality reaches up into the topmost summit of his spirit. The degree and kind of a man's sexuality reaches up into the topmost summit of his spirit. Where he wrote that, it was really in a in a book that contains a lot of just single sentence aphorisms, and and so the immediate context around that is not exactly it do, doesn't even look that related. It's not that apparent immediately. Um, but what if we replace uh, what if we take that statement and replace the word sexuality with eros? The degree and kind of a person's eros reaches up into the topmost summit of her or his spirit. It starts to make sense um, in terms of uh, everything that we're talking about. The degree and the kind of eros will shape, determine, open to lesser or uh, more extents and ranges the the degree and kind of spirituality, if you like, or let's say path that a person chooses or engages in, etc. The degree and kind of a person's eros determines the degree and kind of the path, and not only in obvious ways. Not only in obvious ways. So this is what I want to uh, draw attention to. What, we might ask in relation to this, what is it then that might limit the eros with regard to the path? So if, if um, uh, in other words, if the eros is determining the path, but, it, uh, uh, but then if the eros is limited, it will limit the kind of path. You understand? It will limit the notion of spirituality. Maybe I'm definitely not using that word spirituality because my, my, my vision of it doesn't, my vision of what a path is uh, doesn't allow that word. Or it, it's only spiritual and it lacks body or whatever. But what, what, what limits um, Eros with regard to the path? 
and, and this this is interesting and it can be so varied but this is really what we want to investigate this kind of what what can go on there so all kinds of things and in all kinds of directions um, Richard Tarnas has a wonderful book um, really beautiful book um, called The Passion of the Western Mind it's a history of the ideas that have really influenced um, Western culture, Western society. And he pointed out that in England, in the uh, restoration of 1660, the restoration of the monarchy, <clears throat> after the events of the previous years, um, after the restoration, just after the restoration, um, prominent um, clergy and philosophers and doctors um, stressed the importance of a sober natural philosophy, in other words, a sober philosophy of nature. Um, for example, or in particular, the recent mechanistic philosophy of material, the world is m composed of material particles which in themselves are kind of inert, but they're governed by permanent fixed laws. In other words, they're sort of Descartian um, or view of the uh, matter and the world <coughs> of the natural philosophy that came with the scientific revolution. So they were really encouraging and stressing the importance of a sober natural philosophy to undercut the passion-inflaming enthusiasm supported by uh, the more esoteric worldviews and the kind of more radical uh, streams of uh, religion that were around back then. Uh, so there was something in uh, a stressing of a certain kind of logos um, that actually undercut the eros that was allowed in relationship to the, the world and uh, and the path in, in that case that people could choose or were on. Um, to cut the passion-inflaming enthusiasm is what he writes. Enthusiasm is the etymology of that word, entheos. It has to do with the, the influx of the theos, the god. So, again, you can see how all this is related, and that would be an example um, or in, in that time in England in a Christian context, an example of juiciness, exuberance, ecstasy, breadth of affect, of emotion, and um, uh, heat of love being squeezed out of philosophy, actually, in this case, particularly epistemology, like what, what, what are valid ways of knowing, you know, inspiration from God, imagination, etc. <coughs> We've touched on this before, replaced by an epistemology that disregarded and dismissed and denigrated um, non uh, epistemology that didn't fit within this narrow view of Western scientific materialism that was emerging. But juiciness, exuberance, ecstasy, breadth of affect, the heat of love, or hot love, as opposed to just kind of warm, warm goodwill, um, uh, squeezed out of philosophy and religion. So again, here's a logos, but you can also see there's a whole fantasy and image there of sobriety um, that uh, alongside the sort of tide of the new logos, the new conceptual framework that came with the scientific revolution and the so-called Western Enlightenment, there there is a, a, a fantasy image here of sobriety. Is this the case today as well? That juiciness, exuberance, ecstasy, a breadth of affect and the heat of passionate love are, are squeezed out of some dharma paths. 
so that there is a kind of sober tone, uh, a, a, a kind of um, looking down or hopefully a removal of um, the ecstatic, of the entheos, uh, the inflow of the divine, <coughs> in that sense, um, uh, or in views where sometimes where um, you know that kind of mechanistic natural philosophy that was talking about um, at that time in in England and in, in the West um, is that related, or can you see that that's related also to some process views? Yes, this atomistic process, moment by moment, of Vedana, um, <coughs> sense perception, etc., etc., uh, and uh, that that too uh, is a kind of mechanistic process view that undercuts eros, the emphasis on cooling, on simplifying. So, so something is deliberately being looked down on and shut out. Or, and what's sometimes worse, there's a kind of disempowerment um, of of the eros by just sort of, it's okay, it's okay if you feel hot, it's okay, but but that's different than giving a place to it or supporting it, or actually making giving it a meaningful place and purpose, the ecstasy, the entheos, the drunkenness, if you, metaphorically speaking, the um, the wildness the heat, the passion, the complexifying, the richness, the imaginal. So sometimes an it's okay attitude, of like, everything's okay, just let it come, let it go, sometimes that's actually more destructive, more undermining to <coughs> the erotic and the soul-making and the imaginal than uh, an active and clear opposition. But it's interesting too, and if we go back to the, the the situation in England at that time in 1660, you can see how political motivations actually played a part in limiting logos and and thus limiting eros, limiting logos and eros, <coughs> and and the fantasies that were kind of um, supported. In other words, there was what was perceived as possible chaos after after. Um, the removal of the monarchy, and then the monarchy had been restored, and so let's let's um, preserve order, let's reinstate order, and let's make sure that no one gets too hot or passionate. We need to keep the lid on the passion, keep the lid on the on the um, range of the logos, on the range of the images <coughs> of what um, uh, you know religion looks like, and the logos in the view of the world. And 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 this these limitations on eurosychologists were coming were political in part, so that's interesting. And again, it's like is was that just a one-off in history? Does it still go on today? <clears throat> so the logos, uh, if you like, shapes or allows a certain amount of your shapes and allows. Uh, a certain amount of eros determines the eros, and the eros and the soul making shape and allow and determine um, the logos, as we've touched on before. But let's go into this a little more from the psychological point of view. <clears throat> Again, a little bit of history. Um, there's a I don't know what you'd call it a, 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 a sort of um, 
stream of philosophy, modern Western philosophy, called pragmatism. <coughs> and um, some people regard William James, the psychologist and philosopher, um, who was active at the turn of the century, really, sort of thing, um, of the last, of the 1800s to the 1900s, um, regard him as the sort of, one of the first exponents of this view. And in a way, what he was saying, in, in a lot of ways, was a little bit similar to what we're saying about ways of looking in conceptual frameworks, that we can, rather than thinking about reality and that that sort of idea, uh, and stressing that, where we're actually um, emphasizing kind of what works and what effect does a certain way of looking or a certain conceptual framework have. It's pragmatic. In other words, it's something to practice. If, it, if you put it into practice, uh, praxis, and it works um, for you, then it's something worth um, pursuing. More recently, in the 20th century, um, the philosopher who, I think he died not too long ago, Richard Rorty, I mentioned him I think already before, is also, uh, I think labels himself, or is labeled as a pragmatist philosopher. Um, But there's a difference between Richard Rorty's version of it, which is actually relatively popular now, and William James' version. And so some people, for instance, uh, um, uh, Jorge Ferrer and um, Jacob Sherman and other writers, um, stress that there stress the difference here between the different kinds of pragmatism, and I would go along with this for myself and say that Richard Rorty is what could be called a deflationary pragmatist. So although he's kind of also saying, just don't get hung up on this idea that you, about reality and that you can come to some way of determining reality or a single way which is the right way of looking and um, realizing the reality of things and the true things. Come away from that um, to this more pragmatic view. What works, what works for different cultures, etc. There's something in his kind of project there that seems pretty intent on disallowing anything that involves enthusiasm, anything that involves a perception, a way of looking that would open the perception of other dimensions and a kind of religiosity and um, divinity, etc. So somehow in the... um, uh, wrapped up in what he's saying is a kind of deflationary... It's almost like there is no truth. There's nothing to really penetrate and know. Human beings are very limited. We can't really know things. Just kind of calm down and accept this fate and and uh, give up on any kind of sense of being able to expand um, the perception of things or, or in a way that brings this this enthusiasm, etc. It kind of runs through his philosophy, as far as I can tell. Um, from what I've come across and read. So there's a deflationary pragmatism. One wonders, where does that come from? Why is it that some people, uh, some people's thrust, they got hold of the same idea, and yet it's thrusting towards a deflation, a sort of um, popping of, bursting of bubbles, bursting of balloons. Um, and other people, it's more allowing, uh, if you like, this expansion of the eros psyche logos, an expansion of the balloons without a realism there. And is there not, I think partly what I want to say is, I think we can recognize it too in different versions of the Dharma, in different teachings and emphases, that there is a kind of deflationary 
um, explanation or take on emptiness, for example. Uh, everything's empty, nothing's really, um, there's no, m- nothing mystical there. It's all just um, interconnected phenomena. Everything kind of, there's no ultimate basis or anything like that. And the whole movement, it's the same it sounds like the similar conceptual framework, but the whole movement is to really burst bubbles. Just, just calm down. Don't, don't get too excited by sort of mystical inspiration and all that. It's a deflationary emptiness. Um, versus, which uh, is more my leaning, and again, I can't help hiding my my leanings here. Uh, um, versus empt- the realization of emptiness being something utterly mystical, utterly wondrous, profound, something to really be excited about. Um, There's uh, something so uh, transcendent of the usual way of seeing there, um, in a way that brings all this wonder and joy and uh, dimensionality to existence and all kinds of possibilities. So instead of closing down possibilities, it actually opens up possibilities, in, in, I would say. So emptiness allows uh, a flatland, one-dimensional view. Certainly, it's a, a, have that view a, a lot of the time, maybe, maybe or rather it's one I can, I can pick up and put down. It allows that, but it also allows uh, much more mystical uh, conceptions and views. Whereas a deflationary emptiness tends to deflationary take on emptiness tends to just kind of by default encourage this more one-dimensional view, and and sometimes that extends to the whole Dharma, so that a pers- you know a kind of um, take on the Dharma or approach to it is is essentially or for the most part deflationary. It's all just simplify, calm down, just be even, you know. Don't get too excited. Don't get too depressed. Um, and there's a kind of uh, it's just this. This is what you have to deal with. Just this. And in the in the, in the flat la- flat landing, uh, reducing the dimensions is also a kind of deflation. But it's also in terms of deflating the eros, deflating the soul making dynamic. That the way that expands, the way that um, grows. And then as well, one gets kind of deflationary psychotherapeutic theories or approaches as well. Just, just you know, just, just calm down. Just ground more. Just rein it in. Just um, sober up a little bit. You might not use that language, uh, and and I, I wonder sometimes even if there's a kind of deflationary kind of approach to art, the arts or different arts. You mentioned um, <coughs> some talks ago uh, this Scottish psychoanalyst Douglas Fairburn, who was. Uh, active in the 20th century, a lot in the 50s especially, and um, and his whole idea of the libido, which is similar to, similar to what we're calling eros, but lacking the dimensionality, is movement towards making connection. And so there's this libidinal ego. A, in his view, a kind of human being has kind of split. There's a libidinal ego and a libidinal thrust towards connecting with objects um, that, 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 you know, others, basically. And um, and an anti-libidinal ego, which gets constellated out of fear of that the object will reject us or be unavailable. So this anti-libidinal ego is a kind of alternate, uh, you know, um, 
alter ego, if sort of, if you like, that that um, that tries to protect us, if you like, and so dampens. Don't get too excited. Don't 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 make yourself too available. Don't go towards that too much, because you because you might get disappointed. They might reject you. They might not be available. And so there's a kind of um, tussle, ongoing tussle, in, throughout life until one gets more conscious of it, and even then. Uh, one's just more conscious of it, and maybe it's less out of control, between the libido and the sort of anti-libidinal thrust, the libidinal ego and the anti-libidinal ego. So one wonders how much, um, if we take that idea and, and expand his meaning of libido to what we're calling eros, how much um, the limiting uh, of the eros in this anti-libidinal movement is coming, in, in essence, out of fear of disappointment. Don't don't puff things up. Don't get your hopes up. Don't make too much of things. Um, whether that's the path or the sense of, you know, the world or reality or the unfabricated, whatever it is. Um, that, that there's a kind of restraining of what we're calling eros. It's limited because of this anti-libidinal ego, essentially out of a kind of wanting to protect oneself from disappointment or just the discomfort of that much eros, that much libido flowing through the being, or, or some other reason, how much that kind of anti-libidinal um, movement of the psyche, of the psychology, actually ends up limiting the eros and then limiting the soul-making, limiting the eros psychologus dynamic because we're, we're pulling back the eros. We're not allowing the eros because of whatever, whatever reasons, um, some kind of fear or protection or discomfort or, or whatever. And then, and then again, then the whole path becomes we choose something that's more of the deflationary philosophy, the deflationary version of the Dharma or emptiness or deflationary psychology or whatever it is. And how much of that is actually coming from this, anti, what Fairburn would call the anti-libidinal uh, movement. So let's, let's explore this a bit more again in, in terms of... Um, Eros and how it um, chooses, creates, or finds a path. Okay, um, or which path, what kind of path it will choose, find, or create. So we've said that eros needs a perception of otherness, right? Remember that eros needs this other, this this erotic object that is other than. Then it's not just this collapse into union, into oneness. So eros needs a perception of otherness, and something in that other needs to have something more or, or beyond in it. There needs to be a fascination with the other. That's necessary to eros, a fascination with the other. And part of the fascination is that there's more there in this other, in this otherness, that I don't quite know yet. I don't quite... I'm not quite in contact with. I can maybe intuit it, or I've been told about it, or I, I kind of dim half perceive it or, or something. So, but Eros needs a perception of otherness and in that otherness it needs this more and beyond. Right, We've touched on this before. So what this means in relation to Eros for the path and what Eros then does with the path or makes of a path or what path Eros makes, what it means is that in order for uh, to have Eros for the path, it means I'm, in, I'm, I'm deeply, fully in love with the path and with where the path is heading, or my sense of that, with awakening. 
in order to have eros for the path and for awakening, I need to have a vision, a sense, a, a, a logos or an image of the path and of awakening that has some otherness to it. There has to be something other to know, right? Just, just now, um, just as with the other, the other being a person or a thing or whatever, the path itself has to have some dimension of some sense of otherness to it, some sense of a more, a beyond that I that I want to know, in order for the eros to really um, impregnate the path or to have a, an erotic, a really erotic connection with the path, with awakening. You know, when people are deeply, fully in love with with the path and with that movement towards awakening, however they conceive of it, which a lot of people are really dedicated to practice. It's there, okay. So something has to constellate an. Has to, has to have uh, the vision, the sense, the logos, and the image of the path and awakening has to have some otherness to it, something kind of other that I don't already know. If my sense of the path and awakening is just about reducing my suffering, that's my vision and logos and whatever conception of what the path is, just about reducing my suffering. That doesn't allow eros doesn't allow enough eros, just about reducing my suffering. There's not, I can't really fall in love with such a path. It might be very useful to me, I might engage in it, I might even be fairly disciplined in my, in my, um, my engagement with my practice, whatever I've been taught, etc., to reduce my suffering. But if it's just, if that's the only thing in it for me, that's what I'm really, how I'm seeing and sensing the path and conceiving of it, Eros cannot really establish in relation to such such a vision of the path. I can't really fall in love with that kind of path. Some, some, um, secular uh, visions or conceptions of awakening, and some, some um, visions of um, where where one is headed in in a sort of in secular versions of. of Mindfulness, some secular versions of the way mindfulness is taught, um, are characterized. Their conceptual frameworks and visions of awakening uh, are characterized by an absence of there being much else to discover or perceive than is already obviously true, apparently obviously true or apparent, than we already know. They're actually characterized by the absence of much beyond to, to, to discover or to perceive. The vision of awakening isn't, isn't really that there is much more beyond what we already sense and, and perceive uh, to, to know. Okay, it may be I, I, I know or discover not to believe thoughts of how I am or how she is or he is or how terrible this situation is or how wonderful this situation is. And again, there, there's this sort of even keel, even keel, go for the equanimity. Um, don't get too, you know, seduced by something seeming wonderful. Don't get too taken in by something seem terrible, seeming terrible. So there's, there's an acknowledgement of that. But basically, this that I currently perceive is, for the most part, taken as reality, for the most part. And the, the, the vision, the concept of practice or path or awakening is really just a disentangling of my relationship with that reality. 
there's not much more to perceive. I'm just I'm just changing my relationship by not being by more letting go by just not being so entangled with that reality. But the reality is pretty much the reality, except for the kind of crazy papancha things I get into about believing this person's like that or this situation is absolutely awful or whatever it is. There is not, then, in such a conception, such a vision of awakening, more, very much more at all, to open um, open the perception to or to discover. Maybe a little bit, oh, this, there's not really a self, there's just a process. So that's a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, but there's not really that much erotic connection one can have with that idea or soul-making connection. Again, it's in itself quite a deflationary idea. Compare that um, conception or vision of awakening with a path that says um, something like awakening um, means to discover your true nature. Um, or awakening is involves the realization of the thorough and deep emptiness of all things. Or awakening involves an opening to the unfabricated. Or awakening is a involves a union with the divine, or a becoming divine, or any any such uh, these kind of conceptions and visions of awakening. The 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 otherness there, the beyond what I already know, what I've already tasted, that is in the vision, in the conception of awakening, and therefore of the path, is much much larger. There's more otherness there, and therefore more eros. You understand. More eros, more uh, otherness, more uh, because there's more otherness, more beyond. There's more eros can get constellated there, and more soul making. Very different um, logoi, different and and fantasies of awakening, um, kind of um, allow, if you like, and constellate um, different um, erotic relations with the path degrees of eros with the path itself and with practice. But then even within the limits of what we might call um, secular religions, why I'm using that phrase is, is, is uh, you know, the religion in the sense of just an insistence, a kind of dogmatic insistence that there is just this, there is just this one dimension. Um, and that dogma, that insistence make insistence makes it a kind of religion, but a secular religion, if you like. But even within the limits of of secular religions, and there might be different versions of that, um, there's still going to be, and this is where it's interesting, Eros Eros is in us as human beings, so there's still going to be a relationship with some kind of otherness um, that is constellated by the Eros. In other words, the Eros in the being Will will constellate a relationship with some kind of otherness, even within the limits of of a secular religious view and vision of of the path and awakening. And that relationship with uh, whatever the otherness is that it constellates, it will be erotic to some extent. In other words, from our definition, there will be a wanting of more contact, of more intimacy, of the aliveness of that uh, contact and intimacy with whatever this kind of other is. So then you get um, presentations of awakening or, or visions of awakening, concepts of awakening that have to do exactly with awakening being an intimacy with life, for example. And again, what's life there? Well, it's 
good question, senses or whatever, or a flowing with life. In other words, again here, it's not just a reduction of suffering. So the Eros has come in, created a kind of otherness, um, but in this case the otherness with, is, is with what? It's with, the, it's with that one-dimensionality. And it's trying to make more of that other, other, otherness. So life becomes an erotic object. Life with a capital L. Intimacy with life. It becomes the erotic object. And there's a kind of romantic, if you like, quasi, I'm using that in a loose sense, a romance, the romance of life and the intimacy of life and being with life and flowing with life or whatever, and the touch of life. Life becomes the erotic object. There's a kind of romantic relationship with that, an elevation of the importance of life, uh, give it a capital L, and, um, and an elevation also in points of this intimacy with it and the touching life. And there's this desire for the contact, the intimacy, the touch of life, etc. So Eros is um, finding some otherness there, and this otherness is, is life, if you like, and it, and it does what it does. It, try, it pumps it up, it gives it importance, um, it gives it a kind of romance in the relationship with it, and there's the desire for the intimacy. But there, the eros is limited in, into how much it can actually expand the notion of life, if the logos is absolutely rigid. Um, so, even, then even then, um, that kind of erotic relationship with life and intimacy with life and that vision of awakening, um, it will only allow a limited eros, a limited falling in love uh, with the path and a limited involvement of the whole being with the practice, with the path, with that movement towards awakening. So there's still Eros trying to do its thing, constellating another, creating a kind of romantic relationship with that other, trying to feel it out, elevating its importance, desiring more contact. Um, but, but actually it's limited. Now if we take Nietzsche's quote again, he, he may say, and, and he's... Um, doesn't pull any punches, Nietzsche. So um, he he may say, well, many on that kind of path, that kind of secular religious path, he might he might say, well, they just don't have much eros, and uh, they don't have much psyche, and that's why they're okay um, with that. We might more fairly say, I think, or more and more, what's the word, um, generously say, if a person has um, limited eros psyche, limited libido, and, and remember, that might just be, you know, people are different. People are different. Um, so if a person has um, limited libido, limited eros, and, and sort of psyche, if you like, um, that conceptual framework and that limited other, that limited otherness, which which cannot expand, which cannot be multidimensional because of because it's absolutely that's refused, that might be enough for their souls. Yeah, there's a limited amount of eros psyche logos sort of fertilization and expansion anyway, and so a limited um, vision and idea and logos of path and awakening. Um, 
comes out of that limited eurosychologos dynamic. That's um, because that's how that's what's operating there, and, and there's a limited vision. But it might be that this limited vision, this limited <coughs> conceptual frame, the limited image, fantasy, and logos of the path and of awakening is enough for some people. And the opposite is true. A limited um, conceptual frame, limited logos and limited image of the path and awakening, limited fantasy of the path and awakening, will also limit the eros for the path and, and, and awakening. The eros that we can really feel and, and have in, in relationship to the path and the movement to awakening. <clears throat> the question is, where are those limits coming from? Where are those limits coming from? How is it that the eros or the psyche or the logos got gets limited in these ways? Some people, there's a limit. And the question is, where is that limit coming from? But, but if there's a limit on the libido, on the eros, on the psyche, then um, it might be enough. A, a limited conception of what the path is and what the awakening is and that there's not much beyond what we already sense and know, that that vision, that, that idea may be enough for that soul. It depends where the limits are coming from. Someone with much more libido, much more eros, um, will need, if they start to have an erotic connection with, with the path and, and with the whole movement towards awakening um, and that their vision, uh, they will they will need a bigger vision a bigger idea of what the path is and involves and what awakening is and demands and involves and open to, opens to. You understand? They need more other. They need more beyond. Why? Because the Eros needs it. Needs it and it will create it both. It will discover it. It will find it. People with a lot of Eros need a greater, um, a, 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 a wider path, a deeper path. They need more to discover, more to move into. They need a beyond, and more beyond. So this more will um, that they want, uh, this more will and and that they discover because of the eros and because of the expansion of the vision that they create and discover, will um, will include at some point some kind of sense of dimensionality and divinity. In other words, divinity gets somehow included on the path. And if there's, they start with just a flatland view, dimensionality will be added to that. And eventually transcendence will be added to that. Or if they're um, only towards the transcendent, eventually the path, the vision, the concept of the path will have to fill out to include the imminent as well. can't just be for the unfabricated. Why? Because the eros is pushing, penetrating, opening, expanding, and, and in its relationship to the erotic object of the path and awakening, it opens and expands the sense of the path and awakening what the Dharma is. So it can't be just transcendent. It can't be just this world. It will be both, eventually, gradually. And if there is um, no sense of the divine, a sense of the divine will come. And if the sense of the divine is only in the direction of a kind of conception and, and sense of an impersonal 
divinity, then it will add the personal. And if it's only personal, it will add the impersonal. So there's this movement to discovering more and more, and actually um, including, embracing more and more in the path, gradually, gradually. Gradually more and more depth, more and more range, more and more fullness, multidimensionality, more and more richness, more and more complexity, more to the path, more to the sense of what awakening is and can be. And it's all coming from the Eros. Predominantly it's coming from the Eros psychologos dynamic. But the Eros can be one of the things people with a lot of Eros will... um, if they're not blocked, it will it will tend to keep opening in these different directions gradually over time and not smoothly necessarily at all. So, a, a, a vision, a sense, a concept <clears throat> of the path and awakening which doesn't ask for any more or much more um, to be perceived or discovered um, of reality or true nature or whatever than is already apparent to normal, popular, um, uh, consensually agreed perception, if it even is consensual, but um, that doesn't ask for anything more than what is already apparent to normal, popular, sort of dominant uh, worldview perception. Such a uh, a logos and a, and a vision of the path and awakening will limit uh, the soul-making dynamic, the eros psyche logos, and the eros in all kinds of ways. One is in relation to what we um, conceive of and um, our image of the path and of awakening. If a person's eros is strong enough, though, it will expand that image that um, fantasy, that concept of what the path is and, and of what awakening is. Or it will actually shatter it. Shatter whatever the current image, fantasy and logos is. Um, and uh, create or discover or find a larger view. A larger concept. A larger conceptual framework. A, a broader, richer, deeper, more far-reaching image and fantasy of path and awakening. If the logos of nothing much more to discover, which is usually implicit, by the way, sometimes it's explicit, but often it's implicit, it's not actually um, voiced, but it's implicit there. If this logos of nothing more to discover, nothing much more to discover, is too rigidly held, or stuck in place, or, or, or not questioned, there's not enough questioning of it, then the eros and the eros-psychologus dynamic can't expand, it can't flower. The soul-making movement is thwarted. It doesn't have the necessary food or sustenance, the necessary soil or basis. Right? It doesn't have this um, beyond to nourish it and to move into and to open to. And the basis that we're talking about is, remember, is a basis of groundlessness. It's a basis of groundlessness because of the teachings of emptiness and because of seeing image as image 
And it's that groundlessness that allows the expansion, the deepening, the enrichment, the creation and discovery of more of the of more of, of, of the object, in this case the path, but whatever else we're talking about as well, the world, the beloved other, whatever. We've talked about that before. So we can, the eros can be blocked, and it can be blocked by this kind of anti-libidinal sort of movement of fear, if you like, or self-protectionism or something like that. It seems like self-protectionism. Um, but or, or also the, the, um, the image, the fantasy can be blocked, or the logos can be blocked. So it can block from any direction and can be blocked in any way. So we've been talking about limited paths and kind of uh, what I was calling secular religious and one-dimensional views, but, but it can also be blocked in, in, you know, uh, with a transcendent view, just blocking it into that, for example. So the block can, can, blocks can work from any direction and in any direction. Yeah? So we'll, we'll continue with this and, and just explore uh, some of this in, uh, a bit more.